welcome to this August edition of Dark Gate Horror Podcast, episode number 24, in which I'll discuss films with creepy kids, including The Orphanage, The Ring, The Omen, and Joshua, as well as some of my other favorite creepy kids. I'll discuss several of the films in detail, so this is a spoiler alert. But first, some news. I'm a big fan of the Twilight series of books by Stephanie Meyer. Harry Potter and the Half-Blood Prince was slated to open on November 21st, 2008 in theaters, but has been pushed by Warner Brothers to July 17, 2009. Summit Entertainment quickly snapped up the date for their adaptation of Twilight, which was originally slated for release on December 12, 2008. The film is about a high school girl named Bella who falls in love with a vampire. The new couple leads a rival vampire clan to pursue them and attempt to force her to decide if she, too, wishes to become one of the undead. Bloody Disgusting reports, in addition to the new revised teaser trailer, Lionsgate released a new and pretty darn cool poster for their Saw 5, Blood Drive. In the fifth installment of the popular Saw franchise, Hoffman is seemingly the last person alive to carry on the Jigsaw legacy. But when his secret is threatened, Hoffman must go on the hunt to eliminate all loose ends. Jigsaw returns to action on October 24, 2008. And now some remake news. Bloody Disgusting is discussing rumors circulating regarding a Candyman remake. No word yet whether it will actually happen. I don't think they should remake this one. I rewatched the original not so long ago, and it has stood the test of time. The Independent, a British newspaper, is reporting cult film The Rocky Horror Picture Show is set to do the time warp once again with movie bosses announcing a remake. The film, which was first released 33 years ago, will be partly financed by Sky Movies in the UK, but initial reports that Richard O'Brien, writer and co-star of the original production, told the BBC that he will not be involved in the project in any way. He added, I have no view on whether it should be remade, but it doesn't have my blessing. The 1975 version of the film is the longest-running cinematic theatrical release of all time and cost just $1.2 million to make while raking in an estimated $140 million at the box office. That's from independent.co.uk, and the link will be in the show notes. I honestly can't imagine doing a remake to Rocky Horror. It's perfect as it is, and it was a cult phenomenon because it really wasn't meant to be a big hit, has an interesting history behind it. And you can find a showing of Rocky Horror at pretty much any given Saturday night anywhere around in the country. In fact, the New Art Theater right down the street from where I live has a Saturday night showing every week with a live cast. There's nothing like seeing Rocky Horror live. Now on to the Nightmare on Elm Street remake. According to IMDb.com, Michael Bay's treasure trove studio Platinum Dunes has not only forged ahead with the balls to remake Wes Craven's classic film, Nightmare on Elm Street, they've gone ahead and secured Billy Bob Thornton as the charred, claw-carrying ex-pedophile who spits witty repartee while slitting innocent throats. Slated for a tenuous 2010 release date, the new visit to Elm Street will be inked by Wesley Strick, known for his work on Wolf, Cape Fear, and Arachnophobia, and based on the original characters created by Wes Craven some 25 years prior. As of now, no imminent directors attached. It's interesting to note the man universally synonymous with Freddy Krueger, that of Robert Englund, has no apparent involvement in this new version. However, England has lent his blessing in support of the casting decision regarding Thornton, adding the eccentric actor is an excellent choice for the role. He continues saying a big budget should mean the film will look a lot better than some of the old movies. This was from omghorror.com. Again, link will be in the show notes. 
And before we move on to the topic of the day, I would like to discuss M. Night Shyamalan's new film, The Happening. The Happening is a 2008 American apocalyptic film written, co-produced, and directed by M. Night Shyamalan. It stars Mark Wahlberg and Zoe Deschanel. The film released on June 13, 2008. I'm going to go over the plot in detail, so I apologize for those of you who have not seen the film yet, but it has been out now for a couple months, and um, I, it is important to talk about the entire plot, including the ending, if, if I want to do a full review of the film. So here goes. In the northeastern U.S., people inexplicably begin committing suicide en masse. First, they become disoriented, then they stop moving, and finally find the quickest way to off themselves. The pandemic begins in parks and quickly spreads to nearby population centers. Initially believed to be a bioterrorist attack, it later seems less likely as the events increase in ever smaller population centers. Elliot Moore, played by Mark Wahlberg, is a high school science teacher in Philadelphia discussing with the students the sudden death of the honeybee. When news of the sudden mass suicide spreads, school's canceled and he decides to leave the city by train with his wife, Alma, played by Zoe Deschanel. His friend and fellow teacher Julian, played by John Leguizamo, and Julian's eight-year-old daughter Jess. The train services stop in the small town of Filbert in western Pennsylvania after the crew loses contact with everyone. Julian finds out that the attacks have affected Princeton, New Jersey, where his wife was located, and leaves Jess with Elliot while he hitches a ride in an attempt to find her. He and his fellow passengers fall victim to the strange calamity and promptly commit suicide. Meanwhile, Elliot, Alma, and Jess manage to hitchhike with a botanist and his wife, and the man explains his theory that plants are attacking people as a defense mechanism. He elaborates on the complex mechanisms that often seem to appear spontaneously, involving strategies such as attracting predators to kill off specific threats and fostering communication between different species of plants. As they drive, they find themselves surrounded on all sides by affected towns. A number of other cars arrive at the same crossroads, all fleeing places hit by the suicide pandemic. A soldier suggests moving away from the population centers on foot to avoid being affected, as the effect has been occurring in smaller and smaller populations. A group of survivors splits into two, with Elliot, Alma, and Jess in a smaller group. Elliot hypothesizes that it is likely caused by an airborne neurotoxin exuded from the surrounding plants. The larger the group of people, the more likely it is to trigger the defense mechanism. Elliot makes the group split into three smaller ones. Elliot's group makes their way into the house of a woman living in complete isolation, and thus she is completely ignorant of the pandemic. Though she allows them to stay, she proves to be a harsh and paranoid host. In the morning, the woman becomes affected and kills herself. Realizing that the defense mechanism has become even more sensitive, affecting individuals, Elliot shuts himself inside the house. He finds himself in a room where he can hear Alma and Jess, and he finds a speaking tube, which leads to the spring house some distance from the main house. Conversing with his wife, he decides that if he is to die, he would prefer to spend his remaining time with her. They leave the safety of their buildings, meeting in the yard between the two, but are surprised to find themselves unaffected by the neurotoxin. The effect seems to have abated as quickly as it began. In the end, an environmentalist on television warns that the pandemic may have only been a warning, like a rash that precedes an infection. And the last scene we see is in France, and the effect appears to happen once again as everyone in sight suddenly stops moving as the wind moves through the trees. Now, The Happening has received mostly negative reviews from film critics, including a rating of 19% at Rotten Tomatoes. 
Kirk Honeycutt of The Hollywood Reporter said the film lacked cinematic intrigue and nail-biting tension, and that the central menace does not pan out as any kind of Friday night entertainment. Variety's Justin Chang thought the story covers territory already overtiled by countless disaster epics and zombie movies, offering little in the way of suspense, visceral kicks, or narrative vitality to warrant the retread. Mick LaSalle at San Francisco Chronicle felt the film was entertaining, but not scary. He commented on Shyamalan's writing, saying, Instead of letting his idea breathe and develop and see where it might go, he jumps all over it and prematurely shapes it into a story. Roger Ebert of Chicago Sun-Times awarded the movie three out of four stars. He found it oddly touching and commented that, It is no doubt too thoughtful for the summer action season, but I appreciate the quietly realistic way Shyamalan finds to tell a story about the possible death of man. So what do I think? I can understand the negative reviews, but I just don't agree. Let's see if I can explain to you why I loved this film so much. I saw the film opening night in a sold-out theater that clearly did not appreciate the film. There was even a little bit of booing. It drove me absolutely crazy until I realized what was happening. I've said many times in the past that I'm a big fan of this director, but I'm also a big fan of the horror genre and an environmentalist. This is an ecological warning packaged in the form of a Hollywood horror film. Sure, the characters could have had a little bit more substance, but that is just not the point of this film. Knight told us a tale of warning, and he ramped up the violence and grisly death count in the process. There are a lot of layers beneath the surface, and this was just not meant to be a summer release. I am most in agreement with Ebert's review of this film. But there is something entirely creepy about the fact that a pandemic can spread through trees and plants. And that is kind of a scary concept right there, which is absolutely appealing. As an environmentalist and a lover of nature, there's nothing better than being outside with a nice breeze coming through. But if you realize that that breeze could be death coming, what does that mean? And how can you feel safe about anything? Above all, I think people took the film far too seriously. Even Knight stated that the film was meant to be a throwback to the old 1950s B-grade creature features, like Creature from the Black Lagoon and Swamp Women. And if you look at it in this regard, the audiences just didn't get it. Sitting in the theater, I felt like I was in on a personal joke that nobody else got. The very concept of nature rebelling against the atrocious actions of humans is fascinating to me. And I would love to hear from you, each of you, as to whether you enjoyed the film and why. A friend of mine, a scientist, forwarded the link to a podcast from Scientific American in which they discuss the science behind the film. I downloaded it into my iTunes, but I haven't listened to it yet. And you can find it at siamsciam.com slash podcast. Let's move on to the main topic, that of why are kids and horror films so darn creepy? On my Supernatural podcast, my co-host Josh and I often talk about how creepy the kids are who appear on Supernatural. I think there's something innately creepy about children. They're far more attuned with the Supernatural world. And as we grow older, our worldview shifts and our influences come from adults around us, and that is rooted in reality. Our belief in the supernatural gradually reduces until it's really just more of a backdrop instead of being an integral part of our imagination. Of course, I find that many fans of the horror genre continue to believe in the supernatural to some extent, myself included. So why are children in films so darn creepy? When I think of childhood, the first word that comes to mind is innocence. One does not expect children to be evil. 
In fact, it is counterintuitive and makes the viewer uncomfortable. Children represent the ultimate good. Traditionally, children have not held power in Western culture. All decisions are made by adults, and children are expected to be respectful and abide with the decisions of their elders. Now, horror films, on the other hand, revolve around the destruction of good. Rarely do we see killing of children on film, with some notable exceptions such as Frankenstein, The Blob, and Sleepy Hollow. And why? Because killing a child on film is the ultimate taboo. Evil children are the ultimate destruction. The best examples of evil children can be found in films such as The Omen, The Ring, The Exorcist, and recently in The Orphanage. Pet Cemetery was a flawed film and not a particularly good book-to-film adaptation. However, it effectively combined the death of a child, Gage, and shockingly went further than most films dare by bringing Gage back from the dead. Who could forget the images of Lewis carrying Gage's dead body to the Indian burial ground and resurrected Gage's evil little laugh with a scalpel in his tiny hand? If you narrow it down, there are really two types of creepy kids in horror films. The first, creepy kids. These kids are ominous. They're passive and usually victims themselves. Often they find their power through inanimate objects. Examples of this are the ring and poltergeist. And the second are killer kids. And these kids are true evil. They're usually born bad. Examples the bad seed and the omen. This brings us to why these films are so effective. Rational or unconscious fear gives a sense of uneasiness, builds suspense, and makes us consider, what if? Unconscious fear is true fear, giving us a physical reaction often referred to as fight or flight by psychologists. This fear is often invoked in these type of films. We, as a society, want to nurture children. The sheer fact that children are the victims in creepy kid films make films such as The Exorcist and Poltergeist work. However, sometimes children are no longer the victims, such as in The Omen and Children of the Corn. These films stick with us as a collective because evil kids make us question the next generation and the overall future of our society, and makes us question whether we are good parents. Freud's influence is clearly integrated into these fears. However, in my research for this episode, I found that many of the creepy kids I favored fell more into the thriller and drama categories rather than the horror. Perhaps I, too, am somewhat biased towards the first category of creepy kids rather than the killer kids. There are far too many creepy kids and killer kids on film to do a full review of all of them, so I chose some of my favorites to discuss on this episode. I would love to hear from all of you as to your favorites. Let's start with the granddaddy of them all, Damien, from The Omen. The Omen, if you aren't aware, is a 1976 suspense horror film directed by Richard Donner and starring Gregory Peck. The 2006 remake starred Liv Schreiber and Julia Stiles. Though part of a cycle of similarly themed movies such as Rosemary's Baby and The Exorcist, The Omen has gained prestige over time for a number of reasons. Its respectability as a profitable major studio film with renowned actors, its seriousness, it plays as a contemporary thriller rather than the knowing excesses of certain aspects of the horror genre, and the originality of the movie's Jerry Goldsmith score. Who knows where horror would be right now if it weren't for the original 1976 film? Besides originating the creepy kid horror genre, which survived the decades to spawn movies like Hide and Seek, The Ring, and The Grudge, is also responsible for the gem of an idea that would be expanded into the Final Destination movies, from the accidental deaths to having them precipitated in pictures taken off of victims. Now that little description is from comingsoon.net. 
The premise of the omen comes from the end times prophecies of Christianity. The story, set in Fulham, England, tells the story of Damien Thorne, who was switched at birth with the supposedly stillborn child of an American diplomat with only the husband's knowledge in order to keep it from affecting his wife. Damien's family is unaware that he is actually the offspring of Satan and destined to become the Antichrist. His father, Robert Thorne, named Jeremy Thorne in the original book, eventually begins to realize this with the help of, of a photographer named Keith Jennings after numerous people connected to Damien die in tragic accidents. After Damien's first nanny hangs herself at Damien's fifth birthday party, a new nanny, Mrs. Baylock, arrives to tend to him. A priest who knows about Damien begins stalking Robert and is eventually the one to point out that Damien is the Antichrist and that he intends to kill everyone in his way. Robert makes it his mission to track down the truth regarding Damien, and the rest of the film is him discovering the truth and then attempting to stop Damien from killing again. The omen was characterized by the chillingly effective use of symbolism, such as the birthmark of the number 666 on Damien's scalp, the effective use of crosses and statuary for foreshadowing, and the wallpapering of a room with pages from a Bible to ward off evil spirits. The remake was released on June 6, 2006, a release date chosen to reinforce the 666 motif. This version has a 26% rating at Rotten Tomatoes and brought in over $54 million at the box office. The original film is number 16 on Bravo's 100 Scariest Movie Moments. Next, we have the 2002 film The Ring, the American of the Japanese film Ringu. And this film gave us two creepy kids, Samara and Aiden. The Creepy Kid Award goes to Samara for her role in this excellent film. Here's a brief review because I'm going to cover this more thoroughly in an upcoming discussion of Asian horror in the U.S. remakes. But the premise is simple. It revolves around an urban legend that once you watch a videotape, you immediately get a telephone call informing you you have seven days until your untimely and grisly death. Seattle reporter Rachel Keller, played by the superbly talented Naomi Watts, investigates the videotape. She is drawn into the players and story behind the video. Her son Aiden was reminiscent of Haley Joel Osment's role in The Sixth Sense, and I'll talk about that later, as a child with psychic powers. And by the dark circles under his eyes and extremely pale skin, Aiden clearly has his own inner demons. But the best part of this film is the character of Samara Morgan. Samara is more than just a creepy-looking girl with long, dark hair falling over her face, who walks a bit... Odd. Samara's backstory, as described in Ring 2, is such. She possesses the power of projected thermography. She can burn images into the mind of another living being or onto any recording media. After taking Samara home, Anna had a hard time concentrating and sleeping. Her mind was filled with gruesome images when her daughter was around. Samara's presence made the horses on the Morgan's farm go insane and die, which threw her mother into depression. Samara also never slept, and her adopted parents soon were terrified of her. Finally, Anna Morgan attempted to kill her by pulling a garbage bag over her head, hitting her with a brick, and throwing her into a well. But Samara lived on for seven days, her spirit creating the cursed videotape after her death. After anyone watches this tape, their phone rings, and Samara will answer and say, Seven days. Seven days later, the viewer will suffer a terrible death unless they have shown someone else the tape so that Samara will still be heard. The name Samara actually means the wheel of life and death. This term refers to the theme of the movie and the shape of a ring. 
It remains unconfirmed if the character was intentionally named this way or if the connection is purely coincidental. This film currently has 72% on Rotten Tomatoes and it brought in over $128 million in the box office. This film continues to be one of my favorite horror films of this decade. And if you haven't seen it, I do recommend going out and renting it. It is one of the few movies that actually scared me in my first viewing. Okay, now I want to talk about Joshua, the latest addition to the Bad Seed Kid legacy. In the wake of such great films as The Omen and Rosemary's Baby steps the 2007 independent psychological horror thriller film, Joshua. I saw this as a screening last summer and was surprised at how much I liked it. Joshua is a young boy who is a music protege and extremely intelligent. He is an only child who is doted by his loving parents. And then Joshua's world turns upside down when his mother has a baby. This is where the film really takes off. Joshua's behavior turns grisly and deeply disturbing to the viewer who knows more than the characters do. As someone who analyzes horror films and has a perhaps disturbing knowledge of serial killer origins and motivations, this film went against my predictions and gave me a bit of a surprise at the end. The ending is not the type that stays with you, but the film was very well done and few people have ever heard of it. Although his character would probably play out better in a novel, it's still worth a watch. The atmosphere is creepy and the characters are great. The character of Joshua was extremely strong and a good addition to our list of creepy kids. The film has a rating of 62% fresh at Rotten Tomatoes, but the box office totals sit at a disappointing 442000 It only opened in limited in New York and Los Angeles. But it's on DVD, and I do recommend you go out and see it. Now, I've been anxious to talk about The Orphanage. I saw it not too long ago. It released in theaters at the end of December last year. And I want to talk about this film kind of in detail, because not only is Simon a great addition to our creepy kid list, this film is one of the best I've seen in a long time. The premise is such, this is from the official site at theorphanagemovie.com. A woman discovers dark secrets hidden within her cherished childhood home in the supernatural drama The Orphanage, the feature film debut of acclaimed young Spanish director Juan Antonio Bayona. A superbly atmospheric and emotionally powerful tale of love, loss, and guilt, The Orphanage is the first film ever to be presented by the Academy Award-nominated filmmaker Guillermo del Toro, who also produced... They explore the shadowy places where human longing meets the unknown and unknowable. Anchoring the film is the fearless performance by its star, award-winning Spanish actress Belen Ruda, portraying a mother desperate to rescue her family from the nightmare into which she has unwittingly led them. The Orphanage is a film about the fragility of life, the agony of loss, and the depth of a mother's love. Laura returns 30 years after leaving the Good Shepherd Orphanage after being adopted. Laura and her husband buy the now-abandoned orphanage with plans to reopen it as a center for sick and disabled children. Throughout the years, the orphanage has acquired a haunted, unhappy air. Laura's only child, Simon, is an inquisitive boy with a vivid imagination and is initially frightened by his new home and worries about the safety of his two imaginary friends, Watson and Pepe. Simon becomes more accustomed to his surroundings and announces he has befriended a little boy named Tomas but no one can see him. Simon's circle of friends grows to include five more unseen friends who tell him cryptic stories and elaborate games that carry a suggestion of the sinister. 
Laura becomes entangled in her son's eerie world and has an echo of her own childhood experiences. Simon disappears on the opening day of the new center, insisting on playing in a somewhat private world and not with the new children. Laura suspects her son's behavior is tied to something deeper and darker concealed within the house's history and seeks out the truth in an attempt to get her son back. Laura sets out to learn what happened to the orphanage after she left, plunging headlong into the past and into an isolated netherworld where the dead reach out to the living. Christian Toto stated in his review for popmatters.com, Like Del Toro's Pan's Labyrinth, the orphanage supplies a series of images not easily forgotten. A simple child's game is revisited later in the film from Maximum Chills, and the sight of a child wearing a burlap mask during the party scene, motionless, speechless, delivers the best scare, and there isn't a CGI effect in sight. One would think the whole spooky child setup would have run its course, with the ring and its imitators pulling out every last fright out of messy-haired children shuffling about, but the orphanage finds a few new wrinkles. The orphanage drew comparisons to the Nicole Kidman thriller The Others during its theatrical run, and it's easy to see why. Both rely on old-fashioned thrills and feature strong female lead. He goes on to say, The Orphanage is a rare film that's both frightening and moving and will stay with you long after the screen's gone black. As a crucial character in the film, played by Geraldine Chaplin, says, You hear but don't listen. Seeing is not believing, it's the other way around. Believe and you will see. The link for the articles in the show notes. I'm not going to review the conclusion of this film because I think you should experience it for yourself. It is one of the best films, not only of its genre, but one of the best I've seen this year. And it's on DVD now. The film is not difficult to follow along, so the subtitles really don't hinder the experience. But like I said, you should go see it. Run. Don't walk to the video store. And my praise is not alone. To see the orphanage is to believe in the power of images to evoke emotions. There are moments so tense you'll need to calm yourself by saying, it's only a movie. That's from Richard Corliss from Time Magazine. Jeffrey Wells from Hollywood Elsewhere says, the orphanage is hands down the creepiest sophisticated ghost story thriller to come along since the others. The orphanage is this year's Penn's Labyrinth, and that's high praise indeed, says Joel Itichi from IGN.com. Rotten Tomatoes lists the film at 86%, and the film took in approximately $6.9 million at the box office. I just want to briefly mention some other notable creepy kids. Who could forget the iconic images of possessed girl Reagan McNeil, played by Linda Blair, in the 1973 film The Exorcist? We discussed this influential film in the first episode of this podcast, so we'll focus on Reagan, by far the most interesting character in the film. Reagan undergoes a battery of psychological and medical testing and given a lot of drugs before it's determined that Reagan is possessed by a demon claiming to be the devil. Reagan's mother brings in a couple of priests to exercise the demon, and this is where the film takes off. Reagan's jaw-dropping actions, such as the head turn and the spider walk down the stairs, provide shock, but the real scariness comes from the atmospheric setting and music, which showcase Reagan's possession even more. Reagan is a bit different from the other creepy kids on our list because she was possessed and did not work on her own or possess any special abilities. But she is one of the most unforgettable characters in film and deserved a mention. Next, I want to talk about the character of Danny Torrance, who is integral to the sense of horror we perceive from Stanley Kubrick's 1980 film adap- adaptation of the Stephen King novel The Shining. We'll discuss this film and novel in a later episode, so I'll focus only on the child in this story. Danny is just your typical psychic kid. His abilities are referred to as the Shining, or the Shine, 
who has an imaginary friend, Tony, who lives in his mouth. Danny finds himself connected to the murderous and horrific events from the Overlook Hotel's past, present, and future. He has spine-tingling visions, such as torrential waves of deep red blood flowing from the doors of an elevator, filling the hotel lobby. But Danny is not the only creepy kid living at the Overlook. Two of the Overlook's own creepy twin girls, the ghosts of the previous caretaker Grady's two murdered daughters, each wearing a blue party dress, holding hands, and standing perfectly still in a hallway, appear in a cut-in for an instant between the engulfing waves of spilling blood. Danny's horrified face reacts with mouth gaping open. Danny knows what is going to happen and gives his family clues, but both his mom and dad are a bit too preoccupied with each other to notice until it is too late. Now I want to discuss The Sixth Sense. I previously discussed this phenomenal film, but I want to focus on the character of Cole Sear for a moment. This character has been critiqued, mocked, and has even been an inspiration for countless films and characters. What makes this character so interesting? A critical eye-exclusive review from July 31, 1999 states, Cole sees and hears things with frighteningly regularity, but the worst happen at night, echoing the very things children and, admit it, adults fear. At one point, like any normal kid, he sprints for the bathroom in the middle of the night, urged on equally by a full bladder in fear of the unknown. While he's relieving himself, a rustle sounds behind him. It's something we've all experienced. The hair rises on the back of our necks, and we turn slowly, half expecting the boogeyman. Cole, of course, has real boogeymen, and the mundanity of the event makes it all the more terrifying for us. But more than anything else, what disturbs us is the awful realization that anywhere you go, possibly including your home, someone has met a bad end, leaving things unfinished and unsaid. One scene has Cole's teacher telling him their school was originally a courthouse. Cole insists it was a place where people were hanged. The teacher, of course, denies this, but Cole knows the truth. Even a place of learning can be tainted by horrible, violent death. As if to underscore this, the sixth sense feels dark and overcast, a quiet morbidity hanging over even the most innocent scenes. Osmond wears the role of Cole well. He carries a haunted look, the look of a child who has seen too much, knows too much, and more than anything else wants someone to understand him. We can see how it tears him apart to lie to his mother, trying to separate her from the thought that her only child is insane. The website will be in the show notes, but it's 5x5media.com. Finally, we have the 2005 film Hide and Seek with the creepy kid Emily. I had the opportunity to watch this DVD last week for the first time, and I'm very much ambivalent as to whether I liked it. Probably more on the no side. I felt that De Niro, now one of my favorite all-time actors, was miscast, and I found myself drifting away from the film frequently. The basic premise of the film is that after the suicide of his wife, David Calloway discovers that his nine-year-old daughter Emily behaves strangely as she finds solace in her creepy imaginary friend, who wants to be called Charlie. The film proceeds with increasingly disturbing events being perpetuated by Charlie with Emily's help. However, young actress Dakota Fanning did a pretty good job with Creepy Kid Emily. She portrayed a stereotypical creepy child, complete with the mandatory disturbing crayon drawings, and sporting a brown wig to make her look even more pale and lost. But the actions of her character were a bit odd. I blame the writers for this phenomenon because she is a child who knows a terrible secret and behaves strangely okay with the truth instead of being frightened and confused like any other child. She plays along with Charlie's games and accepts her strange and deadly family secret as if it were completely normal. I'm not going to give the twist away in this film, 
because there would really be no other reason to sit through it. The reviews were poor across the board for this film, faring 12% rating on Rotten Tomatoes. Not everyone on the internet seems to have written on Creepy Kids, but my favorite article is from Entertainment Weekly entitled Child's Prey, 15 Creepy Kids and Movies by Gary Sussman on January 15, 2008. For the full list, see EW.com for details. The song of the night tonight is Not Coming Home by the Cool Waters Band from my hometown of Appleton, Wisconsin. Brought to you by the Podshow Podsafe Music Network. Check it out at coolwatersband.com. Enjoy! Pero 
that's it for this August edition of Dark Gate Horror Podcast. Our next episode will discuss torture in films. Thanks for listening and take care. Thank you for listening to Dark Gate Horror Podcast. You can send me an email at darkgatehorror at gmail.com and visit my website at darkgatehorror.blogspot.com. Thank you to Josh Woodward for the use of his song, I Want to Destroy Something Beautiful, which is the opening and closing music. His website is joshwoodward.com. Music played on this podcast is from the Podshow Podsafe Music Network. Check it out at music.podshow.com.